Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. In the summer of 2014, a large influx of unaccompanied children and mothers traveling with their children from Central America began arriving at the South Texas border in the Rio Grande Valley. The governor at the time, Rick Perry, deployed National Guard and state police under a border enforcement initiative called Operation Strong Safety, which Perry and other lawmakers said would target drug smugglers and human traffickers. Local law enforcement was offered overtime pay to participate in the operation, which would end up costing nearly $1 billion. Eric Gamino, a police officer at the time, was working on his dissertation for graduate school and asked his boss at the police department whether he could participate in Operation Strong Safety and write about it. Gamino was given the okay if he used pseudonyms for the police department and his fellow officers to protect their privacy. Last year, he published some of his findings in a study called Border Splurge to Deter Border Surge, which I first learned about from an informative piece by Ryan Devereaux in The Intercept about Texas's current Operation Lone Star. Gamino's fellow officers nicknamed the border operation Operation Netflix because they spend so many hours watching movies in their squad cars, and some officers even take naps. Days would go by, Gamino wrote, when they wouldn't do anything but stare at the Rio Grande from their squad cars for hours from their designated posts. Now an assistant professor in criminology and justice studies at California State University, Northridge, Gamino talks to the Border Chronicle about his years policing the borderlands, working Operation Strong Safety, and his findings on how money would be better spent in border communities. I'm really glad to have your perspective as a former police officer who participated in one of Texas's many border surges. Uh, I don't know how many surges have there been now. <laughs> uh, a few. Too many. It's 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 like I've mentioned. I that when people ask, I just say, well, it's the same poison in a uh, differently labeled bottle. Uh, that's pretty much what it equates to. Well, at least in, in my eyes, right? Uh, right, and and you grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, right? So I'm yeah. I consider myself a a, a border rat. Uh, so I'm a lifelong resident of of the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, I was born in Illinois, but but raised in the Rio Grande Valley. So all my my schooling um, has occurred there in the Rio Grande Valley, with the exception of my graduate degree. So when when um, you look at my participation in this operation, it's part of the larger study, which was my uh, dissertation. Right, and and so one of the deals you had to make with the police department you worked for is okay. We'll let you write about this operation, but you have to use a pseudonym, right? In the dissertation, you refer to the police force as I think the Del Monte. Del Monte County, yeah. Del Monte County, yeah. And 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 what I really appreciate about your perspective and your work is that we so rarely hear from people from law enforcement who have participated in these border enforcement surges and who can talk about from a sort of insider's perspective how effective they think it was and sort of what their experience was, you know, because we mostly hear about it sort of from the outside. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, 
I, I see that. And it's, you know, what, what I talk about as far as, you know, that blue wall of silence, that uh, there's just secretly, uh, there's a sense of secrecy, um, insularity that is involved in uh, law enforcement. The border has uh, been and continues to be erroneously portrayed as this area where lawlessness, chaos uh, prevails on a daily basis, and that is obviously not the case. So when it comes to my work, um, I, I, I try to be as, as honest and as candid as I can, navigating that dual role of police officer and also the civilian aspect of my uh, role, which is uh, a resident of the borderlands. That's what made you interested, I guess, in documenting this operation. How effective is this? Is it making the best use of our resources? And, and what kind of impact is it having on border residents? As it relates to the state of Texas and uh, the Texas legislature, they're the ones that control right? how, how all those funds are, are distributed. And you know, we have this continuous flow that, that is directed towards law enforcement agencies to stem the flow of uh, asylum-seeking Central Americans, but they paint it as a, a something criminal in nature. In other words, that they're you know, having these operations because they want to stop the human trafficking and drug uh, trafficking. How long did you participate in the operation? It was a, 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 just based on my observations on a very limited amount of days. It wasn't over a long period of time because the, the only reason that, that I wanted to work that operation, which at the police department, it was a, a considered an overtime detail, was to include that and to look at that operation critically from an insider perspective to see what it is that you know, my peers were doing while working that operation. I was familiar with it at the police department. Everyone knew, hey, there's this new overtime detail called Operation Strong Safety. If you wanna sign up, go ahead and sign up. I really wasn't um, too interested, but at the behest of one of my coworkers, hey, you know, you should try it. Maybe you should include that in, in your book. And I, I, you know, I, I took her advice and I'm like, okay, I'll, I, I'll sign up for this detail um, to see what it's all about. Um, and can you talk about sort of what your experience was as you were participating? Yeah, so uh, that, that's, that's the thing that uh, the individuals that participated in this operation were not individuals who were overzealous, anti-immigrant uh, vigilantes who wanted to serve as de facto immigration enforcement officials. No, they just signed up because this was an operation that would provide them the means to supplement their normal income. Through word of mouth, after a while, you know, and everybody knew that uh, there wasn't much involved in terms of um, work. Everyone knew that you were going to be stationary at your post for a prolonged period of time, and you were not to move from your post until you saw some type of activity at the border, whether whether that be um, individuals crossing the river and then referring them to Border Patrol or, you know, reporting, you know, any other type of suspicious activity uh, to your superiors or to uh, dispatch and, and notify, you know, Border Patrol or the corresponding uh, law enforcement agencies. And when I worked it, 
I I saw it for what it was, which is pretty much you are doing nothing. Uh, some of, of my colleagues uh, streamed movies. Uh, others slept. Uh, I, on the other hand, right, I don't absolve myself uh, from anything in terms of, of what I did. I, I, I was working on my dissertation, all the while working uh, this operation. And um, the way I view it is just the same as, as my colleagues, is that um, if you're ordered to be somewhere stationary um, at your post for a prolonged period of time, it's, it's pretty difficult to have your head on a swivel, you know, the whole time period trying to prevent someone from crossing when in reality, a majority of the individuals during that time period that were that were crossing were uh, unaccompanied minors and uh, mothers from Central America. And did you have any interactions with asylum seekers coming across? Well, I, I did, but as I mentioned in my report, that came based on my everyday routine work activities. That was something separate from my participation in the operation. Um, so when I, when I came across them, it was during routine patrol. Um, I would uh, have several encounters with uh, minors, with mothers and their children. And uh, I, I heard um, the same general theme that uh, these individuals were seeking asylum in the U.S. because they were fleeing from you know, violent conditions in, in Central America, poverty, uh, political instability, family reunification. Um, so I, I heard some pretty um, harsh stories, in particular as it, re it relates to females um, and, and what they experience in their journey to the U.S. And, and so the idea, though, with the operation is that uh, the you police vehicles would be there to deter people from crossing, right? And we have this Texas-style prevention through deterrence, which is a federal policy that's been happening since the 90s, where we're going to make it as difficult as possible for anybody to come and request asylum uh, so that they don't come. But as we've seen over the decades, that hasn't worked. Um, we've seen an increase in deaths you know, in the borderlands from exposure and people who are walking, you know, many miles through the desert, like you see in Brooks County, which is just north of, of the valley. How is the Texas style prevention through deterrence working or did it work in your opinion? I don't, it, it depends. It's, it's like in the eye of the beholder, meaning uh, it depends on who you ask, right? If you ask the politicians, they will make the claim and, and tout it as a success. And when you think of law enforcement activity, it's, it's data-driven in that they tend to tout the, the success of the operation based on the statistics that are disseminated through their press briefings. You know, Texas DPS, they will have their uh, press briefings where they will uh, mention, we had X amount of uh, individuals that were arrested, we seized X amount of illicit narcotic drugs. We referred X amount of immigrants to uh, Border Patrol officials as part of this operation. So for them, uh, they, they tout that as a success because they have to report to the Texas legislature and have to provide some type of proof that to a certain extent, this operation is successful and that it should keep on receiving funding. Um, but as far as when you look at it in terms of, of, of the operation and, and what it's 
supposed to do, you know, meaning that they want to deter uh, asylum-seeking Central Americans, you know, we know that uh, it, it, it's, it's ineffective. So that's a lot of times when people ask me, you know, do you think it was effective or not? I, I always answer with, um, it depends on, on who you ask, because law enforcement, they're going to tout it as a success. But when you ask others, you know, you, you, you look at the, the collateral consequences uh, of these draconian operations, like you mentioned, sometimes they have to resort to uh, more desperate measures in terms of, of crossing through uh, clandestinely through other dangerous terrain to avoid all these law enforcement officials that are uh, posted on a certain part of the, the borderlands. Right, and we've had about, you know, more than 20 years of prevention through deterrence, and we still have huge influxes of people coming, so. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what, I, what I observed in, in my interactions with, uh, whether it be Central American asylum seekers or undocumented Mexican immigrants. Uh, you have uh, a hyper-policed, uh, a, high, a hyper-militarized border, but that will not deter them because, you know, or even fear of victimization because it is precisely fear uh, that is driving them from their home countries to the U.S. Um, so no matter, I've, I've asked them uh, in, in my interactions with them, you know, having experienced everything you've experienced, whether it be, you know, sexual assault, physical victimization, um, would you make this dangerous journey again to the U.S.? And an overwhelming majority of individuals responded with yes. Um, and that's one of those things that I think gets, gets lost in, in the immigration debate is that, uh, you know, asylum seekers, immigrants are viewed as political pawns for the, for the sake of furthering somebody's political agenda, at least as it relates to me from my lived experience as a law enforcement official on the borderlands. And, and you talk about how you, I guess you see politicians come down to your hometown and to the border and really gin up this whole thing about this lawless border and we got to shut it down. We got to have boots on the ground. You know, how did you see that play out while you were participating in the operation as a law enforcement official? We, we knew something was up, but then once mainstream media started ascending into the, to the valley, you know, you had ABC, you know, NBC news, all the, they're, they're, they're you know, their national correspondence descending on, on, on the border, we knew uh, that something was up in terms of uh, that while this is bigger than just a, a, a two-day, three-day event, right? Uh, it started in, in 2014 and it continued. So generally, when politicians would go to the Rio Grande Valley, they would all tour the Border Patrol detention facilities because that's where they got a glimpse into the 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 asylum seekers or immigrants being held or confined to these uh, cage cages, and then after touring the border patrol immigration detention center, it was partisan in that if you're a Republican, you were going to tour the Rio Grande River with law enforcement officials, so they were going to get to an inside look from a law enforcement perspective. If you were a Democrat, 
after leaving the Border Patrol detention facility, you would then travel to a local uh, shelter that was assisting these unaccompanied minors and mothers with uh, clothing, food, and shelter. Right, and the community and law enforcement, Border Patrol, they all play their part in this sort of theatrical production, right, of, of what is being transmitted to the rest of the country as to what is supposedly happening. Yes, it's, you know, border theater. You know, I, I viewed myself as a performer because we had to put on a performance for, for, the, for the U.S. polity. You know, you start seeing the boats up and down the river, helicopters, the massive amount of law enforcement personnel, you know, these, these performers, which are law enforcement officials, have to, of no fault of their own, right, because law enforcement officials are viewed as a, as, as a tool of um, politicians for their own political agenda. But in this case, they had to portray this imagery of uh, law and order and that they were going to take a stance to secure the border because um, at, at that time, uh, the, the governor felt that the U.S. government, in this case, a former president, wasn't doing what he should have to stem the flow of these asylum seekers. Yeah, and what blows my mind is that, you know, these are communities now that are are metropolises, right? There's millions of people there, and it's become this sort of exclusionary zone for the purposes of these theatrical performances for the rest of the country, right? I mean, right now we've got uh, Operation Lone Star, which is yet another surge by now uh, Governor Greg Abbott. And I wanted to hear from you how you think this operation is different or is it different from the one that you participated in? I think it, it differs in the sense that back in 2014 with Operation Strong Safety, uh, local law enforcement, state police, in this case DPS, you were, um, you know, stationary at a certain at a certain post for a prolonged period of time, unless you were um, witness to something that you had to act on, whether it be you know, like I mentioned before, individuals crossing the the river. Now you know Operation Lone Star, you have the, the DPS and the Texas National Guard still performing similar functions. However, they've taken it a step further in that now DPS is arresting these individuals for criminal trespassing, you know, state charges. Whereas, you know, years ago in 2014, DPS was, you know, if they observed somebody, they did the same thing as us. You know, you just referred them to immigration authorities. Uh, DPS would conduct traffic stops. Now, you know, DPS still is conducting uh, traffic stops. However, now they've also added that arresting component for, you know, the state charge of, of criminal trespass. So that's where um, I, I, I uh, state that when you, when you look at Operation Lone Star, they've taken it a step further by actually now trying to arrest these individuals on, on baseless claims of, of criminal trespass, where, you know, as we know, it, it was deemed, I think, recently unconstitutional and a, more, a majority of those cases were not even prosecuted. Um, <laughs> they were baseless. Baseless, correct. Yeah. And, and I know I've talked to police chiefs in the past who are concerned about 
their officers being perceived as immigration enforcement because they're concerned that people in the community will not reach out to them when there is a crime committed because of their immigration status. And and they have told me that they feel like it makes the community as a whole less safe. How do you feel when, I guess, police are turned into immigration enforcement officers like this? It, it has counterproductive effects as it relates to police community relations, because aside from having local community members come forward as as victims to report their victimization, you also depend on the community to provide information as witnesses. A lot of uh, police uh, reports or or crimes are solved based on community um, support in the form of, um, I was witness to a crime, I want to report to you what I observed as a witness. And that's why you see uh, sometimes when uh, politicians and, and government officials from other areas that go to the borderlands, I always find it odd that um, they'll, or at least in this case, you know, as it relates to the current Texas governor, he'll invite Texas sheriffs from across the state of Texas, but will not include any of the local border sheriffs from the Rio Grande Valley. And why? Because more than likely, he knows that they will not go along with his um, political agenda of, of perceiving the, the border as an area of lawlessness and, and chaos. You know, the Texas border is a huge expanse, uh, and each community is distinct. You know, if you really wanted to, to crack down on, on what's going on, you would really need to invest in your local people because they know better than than anybody else and oftentimes their voices are are, are excluded they're, they don't they don't have a, a seat at the table and why because it, it uh, you know what what these local officials from the border will have to say does not fit the narrative that is being put forward by uh, the local governor of the state of Texas and and it's just no surprise that um, most recently I think a couple of weeks ago when he went to announce um, that he was going to run for governor, you know, of Texas again, re-election, he went to the Valley. You know, several days later, you know, the National Border Patrol Council was going to endorse him. And where did they have their um, press briefing for that? In the Valley. Um, So that's one of those things that, you know, he... And other politicians who have this distorted image of 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 the border, they 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 will descend to to the border just to promote these false narratives. All the while, they tend to exclude the locals because what the locals have to say will be in in uh, stark contrast to what they want to you know, state. Right, and and so. In the operation you worked in, you worked with National Guard and state troopers from other parts of the state. What was their perception like when they arrived? In that interaction that I had with that state trooper, he was uh, from North Texas. He uh, he had a misperception of of the valley, and he he viewed it um, as as a, a form of of. Uh, I should say enlightenment, I should say, because he like he told me, he's like, wow, this is totally different than what I was expecting when they told me I'd be coming down to the border to work this operation. You know, I, I figured, you know, that you all's uh, homicide units are busy all the time. And, you know, 
obviously I laughed and I told me, yeah, unfortunately that's, you know, border optics, right? That that's that's how they perceive the the borderlands area. And the same thing holds true for my interaction with the members of, of the National Guard and the conversation that I had with them is that, um, you know, in terms of, of what it is that they were doing, um, they like me were just stationary somewhere uh, in somewhere for a prolonged period of time with nothing to do. Yeah, I mean, judging from what you say in your study, there was a lot of you know trying drinking coffee, trying to stay awake. Yeah, and when you look about it now, in terms of currently with Operation Lone Star, um, I've been reading that suicide rates as well. Uh, with the they're there at the at the border for a prolonged period of time, and it's causes stress on them. That it's it's probably something that uh, they didn't sign up for. That knowing all the while that it was ineffective in that if individuals wanted to cross the river, they were going to cross, and there was nothing that's going that was going to stop them. Because in fact, they're presenting themselves two Border Patrol agents are looking for somebody so that they can request asylum. They're not trying to evade. Yeah, the roles had, had reversed. So it wasn't as if uh, they were running away and, and you know, trying to get away from, from the grasp of uh, law enforcement officials uh, because they wanted to voluntarily turn themselves in. Yeah, so McAllen, which I remember at that time in 2014, spent more than a million dollars uh, housing people, feeding them, and could not get reimbursed for it. I think finally the federal government did put the money forward to the state, but then the governor reallocated that money meant for McAllen for uh, enforcement, for more enforcement. And that gets lost in, in, in this whole debate is that you have these local communities that are trying to assist asylum seekers and incur a lot of the costs that, that comes alongside with that. However, w- when you look at uh, the money and where it gets allocated to, it's always law enforcement. Yeah, I feel like over the years that I've, I've reported on this is- issue, increasingly all of the humanitarian response has been left to border communities and to nonprofits and the federal government has increasingly sort of washed its hands of, of, of that response, you know. Uh, for instance, there was a program that ICE had where they would drive the individuals from the border to, you know, the airport or where they needed to go uh, with a notice to appear, which they won't do anymore. You know, they'll just drop them off in, in the middle of Del Rio or whatever and leave it for the for the city to to respond. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they've, they've been pretty much left to fend for themselves and people ask, well, you know, how can we solve this problem? Well, it's, you know, Congress and their inability to act. And then sometimes, you know, at least in the state of Texas, they, they, they feel that Washington is not doing anything. So therefore, they're going to take it upon themselves to address this issue through, you know, this Operation Lone Star. And... Obviously, that that has not worked. You know, it's, it was deemed unconstitutional. Right. And did you say how how many years did you serve as a law enforcement officer? Eleven years. So I, I started at a real young age, and and I matured within the profession. In that I I well, obviously I had to mature at a real young age. In that these things that I experienced as a police officer um, may 
made uh, to a certain extent impacted the way I, I, I view society. In in what way? Um, you see social misery you know, day in, day out. It becomes part of your life. Um, but for me, my saving grace was school. That, that's what helped me uh, to a certain extent keep my 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 sanity you know when i was a graduate student i was i learned to view uh, social issues through through a critical lens and and i myself viewed my position within the department through a critical lens right and as a as a resident of the borderlands um i would say since at least 2005 there's been the multiple surges and each one of them brings several layers of policing because you have the local police, you have the state police that are deployed there, you have the National Guard, you have ICE, you have Border Patrol, you have all these layers of policing. And, and I would argue that the Rio Grande Valley is probably the most heavily policed region in the entire country, which I don't think is ever really commented on or, or noted by, by the rest of the country or studied much, but uh, I, I wonder what kind of impact that has on residents there. It becomes part of your everyday life, uh, living in a hyper-policed uh, state. As, I'm talking, speaking as a, as a, a resident of the, the valley, that it, it's very common to view a border patrol unit just as you were to view a police uh, vehicle. The same thing for um, the state police, DPS. Particularly as it relates to DPS, they they tend to occupy all the local hotels. So you'll see the hotels with nothing but black and white DPS vehicles parked there. So it's a, to a certain extent uh, a boost to the local hospitality industry, but not I don't think the the, the way that they would want it to be. Um, when you look at restaurants, and it, it also affects everyday routine driving behavior. Some individuals are afraid to go out to purchase groceries because they are fearful that they may be pulled over, whether it's by Border Patrol, uh, DPS, or the local police. So what do you see happening with these militarized operations in the future? Do you think we're just going to keep having more of them, or where do you, where do you see this all headed? So when you, when you look at these uh, local or... These operations that are in effect right now, it, that's always been the institutional response. So w whenever something is occurring there in the border, uh, the state of Texas always is like, okay, we're let, let's draw up a new operation. Let's change the terminology or, or something. And you know, obviously it's, it's, it's ineffective, but it serves its purpose in that it, it further promotes the, the political agenda of you know, the person in control in the state of Texas, in this case being the governor, that uh, he is a law and order individual, that the border is in disarray, and that only he and uh, these operations will be able to, you know, curtail or, or stem the flow of, of all, you know, that is occurring on, on, in the border in terms of immigrants or, you know, drugs that are coming across the border. So, I mean, yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, I, I, I do foresee it continuing in the near future. Why do you think the Valley in, in particular gets so much of this uh, policing and so much of the focus from politicians? 
I think because that's that's the area where uh, the the current flow of of individuals cross through. When when you look at uh, the trajectory paths, right, you have a, a large amount of of um, as, at least as it relates to Central American asylum seekers um, that they make their journey through the Rio Grande Valley. Right, it's the shortest distance to Central America, right? That part of the border. Correct. All they got to do is just take the train, La Bestia, you know, go up the, the coast and then, you know, go through uh, Tamaulipas and, and make their way on to, to the U.S. You know, obviously it's longer to go to Sonora or through, you know, Arizona or, you know, Chihuahua, you know, all these other uh, bordering states to the U.S. So it's the shortest route and therefore that's why it receives a... Um, a lot of attention. Can you talk a little bit about your book? What's it going to be about and when's it coming out? I'm still in the writing phase of my book. Uh, I'm converting my dissertation into a book manuscript and it's it's twofold. One looks at police collaborating with immigration authorities, I mean federal immigration authorities to enforce immigration law. And then the other aspects looks at uh, the dynamic of race relations in a majority-minority community, which is the Rio Grande Valley. It's a predominantly Mexican-origin community. However, when people view the Rio Grande Valley or, or borderlands in general, they view it as uh, a monolithic community, but that's not the case. So uh, the other aspect of my book will examine that uh, intra-racial uh, relationship amongst uh, Latinos in, in the Rio Grande Valley. I look. I really look forward to reading it. Um, Thank you. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but you know, you get get writing now. <laughs> no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm working on. It. Yeah, that's that's the thing that, uh, as I've learned, you know, writing a, a book manuscript is a lengthy process. Well, I, I I want to thank you so so much for for talking to the Border Chronicle. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It was my, my pleasure. And, and thank you for, for the opportunity. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com. 